Star jump sequence terminates, Captain. Get the gravitational dampers online and open the blast aye, shield. Aye, sir. Bring us in closer. Aye, aye, sir. Moving us in on sublight drive. Extreme magnification. Aye, sir. The center of the galaxy. And there's our black hole. The experience of a lifetime, Captain. Let me put this on audio. We should be able to hear the magnetic resonance field. This is it, ladies and gentlemen. The edge of time and space where the impossible can happen. Welcome to the event horizon. Good morning, or afternoon, or evening. Whatever is relevant for the part of the world you are in, indeed welcome to the Event Horizon, where the impossible happens. Join us each week at this time as we delve into science fiction, science fact, and fantasy in all their forms. I'm your host, Gene Turnbow. With me is my co-host, Susan Fox. Hello. And we have another guest panelist today. His name is Gabriel Gentile. Oh, hey, buddies. <laughs> <He's>, <laughs> he does our voiceover work. He does uh, imitations of all kinds of different characters. And, uh. Yes, the, the other, other voice of Krypton Radio. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. And, uh, our guest today is Dana Claire Simpson, who is the, you're the creator of a very popular comic strip called Heavenly Nostrils. Which well, it was called that until pretty recently. And it's called Phoebe and Her Unicorn now. Yes. They made me change it when we launched in print. Heavenly Nostrils was apparently a good enough title for a web comic, but when we did the print launch, they were like, we have to change the title. And because I really, really wanted a print launch, I did not argue. Yeah. Well, that's too bad. I keep wanting to call them OK Go Comics. That's Um, yeah, I mean, I always knew, actually, that they were probably going to make me change it. I, the plan was always to eventually do a print launch. I actually thought it would happen sooner, but, you know, syndicates, they wanted to wait for the market to be right and for them to be done launching the strip that they launched before mine, which did unexpectedly well, so they had to keep putting resources into it. Mm-hmm. Um, it was a strip called Wumo, which is good, by the way. Uh, and then, so... After three years of being just on Go Comics, we did the print launch earlier this year. And at the beginning of the year, we changed the name of the strip to Phoebe and Her Unicorn, which was already the title of the book, which came out last September. And uh, the book was also originally called Heavenly Nostrils, but Barnes & Noble told us we'd buy more copies if you call it something that's more descriptive of the contents of the book. They just don't like orifices, do they? Apparently. I didn't realize Nostril was such a... Like a polarizing word, but <laughs> seven-year-olds would say, "Yes, that's mine." If nostrils are so controversial, why don't we have to wear underwear on them? <laughs> you have a nose mitten. Yeah, they, they they were traumatized by boogers as a kid. I guess I don't know. That must that's be. another word they won't let me use. They won't let you use boogers. Boy, you and Doctor Johnny Fever. Well, I get to use boogers again soon. I think. Um, <laughs> Like Welcome the, to Booger Talk on Crypton Radio. Yeah, I'm really waiting to be able to get the word boogers again. Also the word butt. There's some other stuff that they keep not letting me do. Mm-hmm. Uh, underwear. These are words that I could use when the strip was online only. They pretty much let me do anything. 
um, in the online strip. Mm-hmm. Like, they would sometimes be like, I don't think you should do that. But they didn't care that much. But print is a whole different animal. And especially now that this strip just launched, I'm suddenly under a lot more restrictions than I was just doing it online. That's interesting. I, I wouldn't have expected that. For those who don't know, by the way, the strip follows the adventures of a little girl named Phoebe who manipulates a unicorn into being her best friend. And uh, yeah, she who's in charge out- here, Phoebe or the unicorn? Answer, yes. <laughs> yeah, well, the truth is, I think, Marigold, Marigold Heavenly Nostrils, the unicorn, might actually be getting more out of the relationship. Because when she was... Before the two of them met, Phoebe was just sort of a kid going to school and stuff. But Marigold was trapped staring at her own reflection in a pond. Something that I think happens to her often. And the way that the two meet is that Phoebe accidentally hits Marigold with a rock that she skips across a pond, thereby rousing Marigold from having to stare at her own reflection in her and contemplate her own beauty forever. A rock to the face, the beginning of many a great friendship. (laughs) It can only go up from there, right? Oh, yeah. So you've been a cartoonist for a long time. This is not your first rodeo. It is not. No, I was a web cartoonist for many years. Um, in 1998, I started the webcomic strip Ozzy and Millie, and I drew that for 10 years. Favorite that. strip ever. Love that. <laughs> a girl named Fox has to love that. Well. I see my reputation precedes me. Yeah, Ozzy um, yeah, and Millie was great. I still love it. I'm still really glad that, you know, five years after I stopped doing it, it still has as much of an audience as it does. I still meet people who, you know, that strip meant something to. And I still meet people who are, like, just discovering it now. They're like, yeah, I read Phoebe and a Unicorn, and that was great. And I checked out Ozzy and Millie, and oh, my gosh, that's great, too. And that's gratifying to me because Ozzy and Millie was practice. Oh, my. I mean, it was great. I don't mean to diminish it. I'm very proud of that strip. But, like, I made a lot of mistakes doing Ozzy and Millie that I learned from. I like to say that it was my PhD in cartooning. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, I, I read Ozzy and Millie now, and I'm always like, oh, Ozzy's line in the third panel is unnecessary. Uh, or uh, there was, was a much more direct way of saying that. Or I don't like the framing of this panel. Millie should have been, you know, closer to the camera or whatever. You know, stuff like that that you learn by doing comics for a while. Well, now that you know more now, do you think you'll ever bring them back? I would love to do another Ozzy and Millie project. I don't know what form that would take. I can't imagine starting the strip up as a daily thing again because... I already have to do a strip every day, and that's already a lot of work. I mean, doing a strip every day is a full-time job. Oh, yeah. And well, it's, so, it's not just the drawing. It's the coming up with the idea that makes sense and and yeah. uh, a carrying a, carrying a narrative along. And, and right now, I mean, day. there's a lot of... And this was never true with Ozzy and Millie, and it, it's a good thing, but it's more work that I have to run everything by my editor. And... Um, I have an editor and then a second reader who reads my strip, and sometimes the president of the syndicate also gives me notes. So there are as many as three people uh, who give me notes on every strip, and sometimes we go through a couple of rounds of that before we're all like, okay, this is done. Wow. Uh, How how far ahead do you work? Are you like uh, two weeks ahead when it comes to uh, submitting strips? So like you can can get sick and have a day off? (laughs) I'm sorry. I am... uh, 
today I was working on Sunday strips from July, and yesterday I was working on daily wow. strips from June. Wow. So that's quite ahead. They made me get that far ahead before the launch. Yeah. Well, like the first six weeks of this of the strip, at least in print, are um, the sales kit, which we, we it was six weeks worth of strips that we assembled uh, over pretty much the course of you know all of 2014. Uh, went through several versions and several rewrites, and th- that was subject to a lot of notes. And uh, that's the packet that we. Well, that the salespeople give to newspaper editors to try to sell the strip. And that's six weeks worth of strips. And we're basically running that as the six weeks, six, first six weeks of the print strip. So I started from already being six weeks ahead, and now I'm well more than that. It's good to be that far ahead in case something happens. Well, yeah. It's I wish like, we were. As in, have to take a vacation, have to go to the hospital. Yeah, some, like something that. very good or very bad mm-hmm. happens in my life. I mean, not to, not to bring the mood down too much, uh-huh. but like in January, my cat died. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she she was sick. She had cancer. She raised a good human. She did. She, she did. did. She made me the woman I am today. A good kitty mama. And she, so mm-hmm. like, I couldn't work for a couple of weeks after that. How do you be funny when something that Sad happens to you. And my editor and everybody, they're all very understanding about it. But among other things, it really reinforced, like, I need to be way ahead in case stuff like this happens. Because once the strip launches in print, I can't not get it done. It has to be there. And if I, I would would be in a lot of trouble if I was, like, only a week ahead and then something happened that, where I couldn't work for a week. Yeah, kind of like our show. Uh, yeah. Now, now, now a, now, a book like the first book, uh, Phoebe and her uh, Phoebe and her unicorns, a heavenly nostrils, uh, heavenly nostrils uh, chronicle. Yeah, that's the last vestige of the original title of the strip. It's the first book has it as a subtitle. All right, uh, a, a, a book uh, containing that much material. Uh, about how many months worth of uh, worth of work does it take to, to to make a book with that much material in it? Um. Well, you can do the math because there are 224 strips in the book. Uh, what is that divided by seven? Uh, and that's how many weeks it was. Um, basically, I think... A I, whole lot of ink. Yeah, I think it's yeah. about eight or nine months worth of strips that are oh in the book. Oh my gosh. Um, and actually, you know, the strip launched online in April of 2013. I know... Or, no, 2012. I... I know the date apparently better than I know the year because it was also my birthday. Ah. They they picked my birthday at random to launch this trip. They're like, how do you feel about launching on April 23rd? And I was like, well, I've done that before. (laughs) (laughs) You and Shakespeare. Yes. And and, uh, Shirley Temple and Michael Moore and Timothy McVeigh and also John Oliver. I'm sure I want to claim all of those people. I don't mean to to, uh, to date myself, but John Oliver and I were born on the same day in the same year. Well, that's interesting. He looks a lot older than I do, I think. But we are exactly the same age. Huh. Nah, not at all. But uh, uh, but but the initial launch in newspapers it's going to be an, it's going to be in over a hundred newspapers nationwide. Uh yeah, the launch well is already I guess uh, the, it launched uh, last Monday. In so this is we're we're reaching the end of the second week of the print run, and it launched in one hundred and ten papers. 
which um, is a lot. That is a lot. By point of contrast, Calvin and Hobbes launched in thirty-five. So, so you must you must be in every major market and a lot of the lesser ones as well. Yeah, but actually, I am in all of the lesser markets and relatively few of the major ones. Because really? that really? is the that's the the flip side of it is that we got a lot of papers, but with a new strip, you usually don't get all the major markets right away. I mean, we've got a few of them. Mm-hmm. I'm in, I think Miami, Boston, and Salt Lake City are the three biggest ones that we got. Oh, and, and L.A., but not the L.A. Times. No, the, um, the, the Daily L.A. News. Daily, right? Daily yeah, News. the the L.A. Daily News yeah. and some other papers around that. that there's a group called the Los Angeles Newspaper Group that has a bunch of, like, small papers around L.A., and I'm in all of their papers. L.A. Times would be a get, man. It would. It, that, it, it'll, cool. it'll happen. It'll, it'll happen. happen. The, the strip paper. is that good. And you mentioned Calvin and Hobbes. A lot of people are comparing your strip to Calvin and Hobbes. Some people are calling it... I, I think this is a little narrowing, but I some people are calling it Calvin and Hobbes for girls. As an executive summary, it's not a terrible description because honestly, that actually is kind of what I set out to write. Ah, I mean, excellent. yeah, I mean, it is reductive uh-huh. to just, I, I hope, to mm. just call the strip Girl Calvin and Hobbes, but I did sort of set out to write feminist, a, sort of a feminist answer to Calvin and Hobbes. I'll, I'll call it that. It isn't necessarily just, a, you know, all a riff on Calvin and Hobbes, but. Watterson said something in the 10th anniversary book that uh, after so many strips about little boys, a strip about a girl drawn by a woman would be great to see. And that's sort of what I set out to do. I am she who's coming, Watterson has foretold. It's just kind of refreshing. The prophecy has been fulfilled. There can be only one. Or, well, and then another one later. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, it's it's uh, you do have the corner on the market for starters. You know, apparently. You mean that? I'm actually yeah. surprised. She's not the only girl out there drawing comics. Well, no, that's true. Certainly this, not. I'm not even the only female artist in syndication. Although the numbers are still pretty skewed. Yeah, they, they so are. many things. Um, uh, has this gotten you in contact with any other uh, popular female cartoonists? Actually, right after I got um, into syndication, well, I mean, not not right after the launch, but like right after. It's a whole other. This is a whole other story. But I actually won a contest uh, okay. in 2009 that got me the development contract that led to this. And right after that happened, uh, Jan Elliott, uh, who draws the strip Stone Soup, emailed me, mm-hmm. and she was like, uh, basically, she congratulated me and offered to help mentor me through the process. And she was great. She was. I'm like, her role through the whole thing was just sort of to say, no, don't panic, this is normal. (laughs) Which I really needed to hear Uh at certain times in the process. But Jen um, said that she, she said Lynn Johnston, for better or for worse, had emailed her, or I guess not emailed, because she got syndicated in like the 90s, so it might have been some other medium. But Jan, but uh, Lynn Johnston had contacted her and offered that kind of help, and she was like, so I offer the same help to all the, all the girls who get signed. Thank we you. are sort of an exclusive little club. Now, now, now the strip that you actually won with, uh, uh, the, the contest, did you say 2008 or 2009? It was November of 2009. Okay, and, now... Uh, then we finalized the contracts about March or April of 2010. Okay, well, the, the strip you submitted for the contest originally, it... Uh, 
it, it was a, quite a bit different than what finally came to be Phoebe and her unicorn. It really was. Uh, the strip that won the contest was called Girl, and it starred a kid who at the time did not have a name. Uh, she was just called Girl, and her, like her friends were all animals in the woods, and they had names like Bird and Rabbit, and <laughs> so they called her Girl because... Mm-hmm. I, that I was, think that was enough yeah, differentiation. That was the yeah. central premise of that strip. And the kid was, she was basically Phoebe. I mean, she wasn't identically she identical to how I draw Phoebe now, but she was basically Phoebe in that she was basically, you know, a little round-headed kid with dark hair and freckles. It was, and I think she even had the same tooth gap that I draw Phoebe with. Phoebe has a missing tooth on uh, the left side of her mouth, always. And I think I think she I think girl already had that, but that was I mean I had created twelve strips for the sake of winning this contest of this girl strip concept, and getting from twelve strips to doing a strip every day is it can be a pretty big gulf to cross. Yeah, it's, it sounds terrifying. I had done, well, I did Ozzy and Millie for 10 years. And Uh so when the comic strip superstar contest was brought to my attention by a friend who I still owe everything to, I guess. Hi, Breck. Uh, His name is Breck. Hi, Breck. uh, I was like, I'm as qualified as any person in the world to win this contest. I had stopped stopped doing Ozzy and Millie just a few months earlier because I believed incorrectly as it turns out but not unreasonably that i had taken strip cartooning as far as it was ever going to take me i'd been doing the web a web strip for 10 years i tried to syndicate it but it never happened i was going to get out of that i was preparing my portfolio to start getting more illustration jobs and then comic strip superstar happened and so i was like i can win this and i put together i came up with an idea i put together a packet of 12 strips to enter and i won. And so what I won in the contest was a development deal to develop a strip for print syndication and a contract to do online syndication and a contract to do a book. And uh, the the book contract produced the Phoebe and Her Unicorn book, ultimately, the one that came out last year. Uh, second book's coming out in May, because the first one did pretty well. Oh, yay. Who's, um, who's, the, publisher? who's the publisher? Andrews McMeal which is the uh, publishing arm of the same company that uh, is also my syndicate. It's, so it's it's all in-house. I see. All right, so well, so, so what, was a, what was a defining moment in the development of the strip from Girl to Phoebe and her unicorn? How, how did the unicorn get involved exactly? She insisted. She showed up one day. <laughs> yeah. Which sounds about right. Like, kind of like that. Like, um, I... Uh, under the terms of the development deal that I had, I would do 30 uh, roughs per month. And I would send those in, and I would get notes on those. And um, we were we spent... Uh, the development contract was two years, and I used all of it. Uh, the strip launched online two years after I signed the contract. And uh, I honestly was flailing a little bit like it just wasn't coming together it wasn't clicking the way i wanted it to and then one day i I wrote this uh strip that was meant to be just a one-off where uh there was a unicorn and the joke in the last panel was that it was a unicorn and girl was talking about how she um 
I don't remember the exact wording, but like she was concerned she was being unrealistic about something and someone off camera is reassuring her and she's like, yeah, but you're a unicorn. Um, I'd have to find it. But it was it was uh, sort it, of an it, unremarkable uh, one-off strip. Uh, it, it, uh, it was the storyline where uh, she was so she thought she was going to meet a dragon, but she met uh, wound up meeting a dragonfly. I think was that the one. That was the storyline that was in the. Uh, that was the one that I actually won the contest with. Mm-hmm. Um, no, I should get that out. That might actually still be something. Um, but uh, the unicorn that was a little bit later. Um, that was like a year into development, actually, that I came up with that. And as soon as I saw this, you know, the girl and unicorn, it kind of clicked, and I thought to myself, what is the girl equivalent of a boy and a tiger? It's a girl and a unicorn. Mm-hmm. That se- that immediately seemed obvious, and then I started being like, all right, I'm going to write a strip with a unicorn in it. And that was how Marigold came into the strip. And she looked really different in her first version. She was a lot less last unicorn, a lot more my little pony. She was sort of shorter and stumpier and her hair was blue. And she got much more last unicorn like and much less my little pony like mm-hmm. over the next uh few months of developing her. Uh speaking of which you actually got Peter S. Beagle to write the foreword of your book. Yeah, actually he offered. Oh, he offered. How cool is that? that wow. Okay, I was on I'm Twitter, impressed. and I'm I don't know what prompted it specifically, but I tweeted, without Peter S. Beagle, there would have been no Marigold Heavenly Nostrils. Hashtag no longer the last unicorn. And then Peter tweeted back to me, oh. and I was like... <gasps> <laughs> you were on Twitter, and you were a Twitter. Yes, I would, my heart was all a Twitter oh my gosh. at that point. And, and, um. How exciting. It, it wasn't actually Peter, because Peter doesn't run his own Twitter account. Um, Chris Rickert runs Peter's Twitter account. She's a friend of mine now, but I didn't know any of them at the time. But she co-owns Rickert and Beagle Books with Peter, and which is in Pittsburgh. And, uh, so she started tweeting back to me and she was like, I'm going to show your work to Peter. And then a little while later, it was like, Peter loves your work and we'll be following it. And I was like, yay, oh my God. And then a couple of days later, Peter's manager emailed me and offered, he was like, would you like Peter to write the introduction to your book? And I was like, let me consider. Yes. <laughs> There's obviously a, a blood relation, <laughs> a spiritual relation. Peter has been, I consider Peter a friend now. Unicorn people are, I guess, we're a small club, too. Well, um, well, well, before the last unicorn came around, there was no example of a female unicorn anywhere in literature. Which is the first thing Peter says in his introduction to my book. He takes credit, and he should. Huh. He deserves all the credit that he wants to take. For it's that. all I'm your just fault, glad he Peter. Suit me. Because the copy of the last unicorn graphic novel lived on my desk while I was designing Marigold. And the uh, graphic novel... Um, which uh, came out through IDW, I believe, is really, really good. It actually might be my favorite version of that story because it sort of combines what I like about the novel with what I like about the movie. And and you actually, uh, you were actually there. Uh, Last Unicorn is now on a nationwide tour, the movie with screenings, and Peter yes. Spiegel himself, and uh, and you were actually part of the celebration up in Seattle. That tour is still going on. It has been for two years now. The kickoff was April of 2013, so two years. 
And I was actually at the kickoff, which was in San Francisco at the Castro Theater. And that was the first time I ever met Peter. Oh, San Francisco, pardon me. Yeah. No, I, I've also done... I wasn't going to correct you because what you said was right. I have also been... You know, every time it comes to Seattle, which is where I live, uh, I have been doing it. And also Portland. And uh, I I wanted to do the, the Southern California leg of the tour in January because I wanted to go to Southern California in January. The weather here sucks in January. But I couldn't, or at least there was not much point in my going because at the time they didn't have my book. They sell my mm-hmm. book on the tour, but they didn't have any at the time because the first printing had sold out. And I guess that must have caught them off guard because they didn't have any more until, like, after that. Good problem to have, but... Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> the book has done really well, but one consequence of that was that for a few weeks in, like, December and January, it was hard to get it. Mm-hmm. Or at least if you were, like, get, or like, a retailer trying to get it. So the next book is in uh, comes out in May, and what is the title? It is called Unicorn on a Roll. And the introduction to that book was written by Lauren Faust. This wouldn't have anything to do with bakery goods, would it? Um, no, no. nor sushi. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, I, wait, roller, four roller skates. We, we we weren't certain if we were allowed to uh, announce that, uh, that that Lauren Faust was actually going to be the uh, person who oh. wrote the, the introduction, but I guess that's out now. Yeah, actually, actually the only reason I was keeping that a secret was I, I didn't announce it until she had already handed the introduction in because I didn't want to, like, say, Lauren Bass is doing my introduction, and then have her say, I'm sorry, I can't. And Uh then I would just have looked stupid. Yeah. So I waited for her to actually hand it in before I started telling people. But, yeah, she she wrote a terrific introduction. I feel like Lauren... Lauren and Peter appreciated the strip, I think, in different ways. Like, Peter kind of analyzed the strip. Like, he talked about the characters and how they relate, and... uh, the, talked about the writing, and that's great. I love Peter's introduction. Actually, a German comics magazine called Fantastisch recently published Peter's introduction translated into German as an article. Wow. So there's that. So it stands by itself. <laughs> can, can Lauren's you... introduction was more like uh, she appreciated that it was a strip about a little girl who you are supposed to identify with. And I do think there's not enough of that. I was really glad, because that's something I love about her work. Peter's many things, but he's never been a little girl. He has not, no. And he has never been any kind of a girl, I don't think. Although he he does write great female characters. He does. Uh, if, if we can, if we can uh, take a moment to veer away just a little bit from the strip itself and talk more about this brilliant artist... Uh, it, you you have so many talents. You 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 did Ozzy and Millie, and uh, you're doing Phoebe and Her and Unicorn now. You've also uh, for a brief while uh, you did a political strip, and you even published your own your own graphic novel. I never finished my graphic novel. So. Oh, I'm, I'm I'm sorry. <laughs> so the, yeah, I was working on a graphic novel uh, called Rain Dog, but I really do feel like Rain Dog. There was a lot about it that. Uh, I, I still like the, the story that I came up with for it, but I did not know how to write a graphic novel, and I got frustrated. Because I was approaching it the same way I had approached doing Ozzy and Millie as a strip, and sort of 
just starting and then writing and drawing until it sort of seemed to be done. And that's a fine way to do a comic strip. It's not a very good way to write a book. Mm-hmm. And I learned that as I was going along. And I, got, I wrote about a third of it that way. And I wasn't really happy with how it was going. And so I was like, all right, I'm going to start this over. Uh, and I think- started to start it over. And then Comic Strip Superstar came along and I didn't have time anymore. And now it's kind of the wrong time in my life to be doing that. Hey. Like, uh, I, for one thing, it's a story that was more about how I felt you know, six years ago than it is now. And for another, I just have too much else to do to be working on a graphic novel, although I am working on another one now very slowly. What about I am you? working on a, an autobiographical graphic novel now. Oh. Uh, yes, I, I actually saw a bit of it, uh, the one about the uh, the story about the palm trees. That was yeah, uh, published that was in sort a... of the genesis of it. Um, it was a, that ran in the Southern California Review last year. And... Um, I showed that to my book publishers and there were, it, it was like, it was a two page thing that I wrote for the SoCal review and it, uh, which had never run comics before that. I and a couple other cartoonists were like the first cartoonists to appear in the SoCal review. Wow. There's a distinction. And yes, I'm proud of that as I am of many things that have happened to me in the last couple of years. And so that, yeah, it was a, story about uh, how when I was a kid, we'd go on vacation to California and palm trees were just mesmerizing to me and it sort of goes from there into a story about a car accident I had in California when I was 22. And it makes more sense on the page. Well, it it already makes more sense. Because I thought, thought, you know, an autobiographical uh, uh, graphic novel about Palm trees. I was born a poor palm tree. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think I could write a whole book about that. I like palm Keep trees. How much to say about them? I, we lived in a log cabin made of palm trees, and the they're basically the ferns that have existed since time <laughs> prehistoric. So you uh, you were a political cartoonist as well for a while. You I was for four years. Type. I drew a comic called "I Drew This." And that started, I was in graduate school, and um, I never finished graduate school, but I was there for a year, and I did this strip originally for the uh, student paper there at Washington State University. And it was very cathartic for me. This was from 04 to 08. And, <laughs> An interesting yeah. time. Yes. There was a time when I had some political thoughts that I really wanted to vent. It was. It helped me get through the George W. Bush years. Apologies to any Republicans, but actually, no, I'm not sorry. George Bush sucked. And <laughs> no, that but that, that's a I very defined about. time period, you know, as, as far as political cartooning is concerned. I only kept at it for four years, and that was actually up until Comic Strip Superstar. That was the. I drew this was the closest I'd ever gotten to syndication because in 2005, uh, United Media contacted me. And they called me up, and they wanted to sign me to at least an online syndication deal for that strip. And they said, we're going to send you a contract. And I was so excited that that night, uh, my husband and I went bowling. My, he was my boyfriend at the time. But we went bowling, and I bowled what are still the two highest bowling games I've ever bowled. Now, that's interesting. <laughs> yeah, I was just, I felt I could not lose. I don't know why... 
feeling really happy made me a great bowler, but it did. But then they like they never sent me a contract and they never called me again. Uh, and that was a hard lesson. I have heard from other people since then that United Media did something similar with them. So maybe that's just... Like, what I was able to put together later was that basically I was the pet project of somebody who then got replaced. Oh. That person wasn't as into it, and so they just dropped me. It, it, your, your work uh, still got published, though, in the uh, in the subversive comic collection that they come out with every year? Yes. I don't know if they publish that every year, but there have been a bunch of them. Um, Ted Rawl, if you know who he is... Um, who doesn't? He's a, a edgy, angry, left-wing political cartoonist, and also a great guy like Ted. And he publishes or published, I don't even know, a series of books uh, called Attitude. And the first one was called Attitude, the New Subversive Cartoonists. And I was in Attitude 3, the New Subversive Online Cartoonists. And both, I drew this and Ozzy and Millie were represented there. Uh And a long interview with me was in there. Um, And that was also fun and exciting. And I drew this, did run, it ran in Funny Times, which is, I, I still like to read Funny Times, it's a good collection of like political humor that I tend to agree with. And um, I came very close, I think, to having political cartoons end up being my job. I also did some freelance political cartoons uh, like around that time for the Tacoma News Tribune about like regional stuff. And uh, I thought maybe that was where my career was going. I'm glad that it didn't. Because I really did burn out on thinking about politics that much. I mean, I still, like, have a lot of opinions about that subject, but I don't want it to be my job to think and write about that. I don't want to be professionally obligated to get angry. I want to be able to choose not to do that. That's absolutely within your rights. I think unicorns are a much happier subject. I would rather think about unicorns than politics. Call me frivolous if you will. I would rather think about unicorns with hip- hipster glasses. I mean, that's that's a nice topic. Yeah. I think um, I'd like to be able to run through politicians with a, from a horn in my head. <laughs> my, yeah, my Skype icon um, is a drawing of Marigold wearing my glasses, which are square and blue. Ah, okay. Uh, I'm so blue. Uh, you're not. You're not only a great illustrator. You're also a. You're also a rather talented musician. You actually have your own band with your sister. From yeah, what I, I guess I would call us a band. There's two of us. Is that enough people for a band? Yes. Uh, no, technically, we are yes. called Ruinous, which is actually an, an obscure first season My Little Pony reference. And can we get some cuts for Krypton Radio rotation? <laughs> yeah. I'll toss you some tracks. Please is it, do. Is it, is it geeky stuff? Ye, all of the songs on our first EP are about My Little Pony in some fashion. Oh, so, awesome. Okay. <laughs> yep, we're there. Not, we're so there. You know what? We play the awesome mix from Guardians of the Galaxy, many <laughs> awesome. of which have nothing to do with science fiction. The, and I, every so often I'll get caught, of the caught off guard and going, why are we running this? Oh. <laughs> also, I, I made an album myself in 2005 of songs because I used to play a lot of open mics when I was in college and Mm -hmm. when I was in grad school and I had a bunch of songs that I wrote and the one that everybody always wanted me to play was called If I Can't Get to London and it was about Harry Potter. Ooh. So I've written some nerdy songs. Gotta hear that one too. Um, Uh, What what instruments do you play? 
I play guitar, kind of. I mean, I play chords. I, I'm not a lead guitarist, but I can play rhythm guitar, and I play saxophone. Oh, that's an interesting mix. Yeah, yeah. I've been playing saxophone since I was 11, because I picked it in sixth grade band. Yeah, I flute, same thing and, for and me. Any particular reason you chose the saxophone? Because... At the time, I had just seen a bunch of the Pink Panther movies, and I was a big fan of them. Oh, yeah. And then when in fifth grade, the middle school band came to my school, and they did this, like, like thing where they would feature a kid on each instrument so that they would be like, and this is this instrument, and, like, a kid playing it would stand up and play, like, a short thing. And the kid playing tenor sax stood up and played the Pink Panther theme, and right then I was like, oh, I'm going to play that instrument. I gotta get cool. one kid with every one of those. Uh, everybody movies. assumes that I started playing saxophone. I don't know if everybody assumes this, but a number of people have assumed that I started playing saxophone because Lisa Simpson plays the saxophone. Well, maybe that, she picked it for I the think, same I think reason. Pre- yeah, that your decision predates that. I think. No. Yes, really? it does by a couple of years. Yeah, just a happy coincidence. It is a happy coincidence. Maybe Lisa got it from you. Lisa was always. Like my favorite cartoon character. She was the first character I saw on TV that I actually really identified with. So, uh, so when you play, can you get that that gritty, throaty roar that that, uh, that a jazz saxophone can? Uh, good saxophone players can do, or, or with the right mouthpiece, yeah. That's sort of a like a metal jazz mouthpiece thing, and I do have one of those, ah. and you get that like growly, uh-huh. aggressive kind of sound. I like that sometimes, but sometimes I also like like they don't give those to eleven year olds. Yeah, I didn't get that until later. Um, I got a, uh, a a hard rubber like classical sax mouthpiece at the time, <laughs> and I actually kind of like that. Like it's sort of a dark, airy kind of sound. Like um, Paul Desmond who played for Dave Brubeck's band on, like, Take 5. And he had that sort of kind of more subdued sound. And, you know, that's that's good, too. But it's sometimes when you play a sax, you just want it to scream for you, and that's a metal mouthpiece kind of thing. Ah, I did not know the difference. That That's fascinating. Yeah, I play I play guitar myself, and you know, just we have a, a number of instruments here, and and Susan buys instruments as a hobby. Shut up. <laughs> <laughs> We've got this. Uh, I uh, have a drum problem. <laughs> That's, That's putting it. Putting I, it I am admitting it. Um, I have quirky percussion surrounding me. My name is Susan, and I'm a percussionophile. <laughs> some, some, you know, some smartass says it needs more cowbell. I'm ready. <laughs> <laughs> and everyone says that too. That boy, that sketch just Susan. That does that, that does need more cowbell. There you go. <laughs> All right, that's we, a good we, amount of cowbell. We we seem to have digressed from the mainstream a bit. <laughs> uh, getting back to the strip. Uh... <laughs> My strip needs more cowbell. <laughs> Do not hang a cowbell on the unicorn. She will. She will get. You will. Like you will face certain sarcasm. I love the. Not uh, unless it is platinum. I love today's. It must be it a just... shimmering magical cowbell. <laughs> <laughs> oh God, I love today's. I guess we're gonna see a Behold. cowbell and know we're busted. I I love today's. It is it's uh it's uh, marigold saying, "Behold my glory." You're not beholding my glory. <laughs> and yeah, Phoebe's saying, 
Behold your uh, horses a sec. That's one, of, that's one of my go-to like writing ideas. If I don't have any particular ideas, just have Marigold be arrogant. Uh-huh. Have Marigold say something vain and just write from there. And getting getting shut down by Phoebe. Where, where, where do you get the inspirations for these characters? Who's uh, Marigold they, they, really? Are they someone you know? Do they come from within? I... Marigold and Phoebe are both me. They're two sides of my personality talking to each other. Some of the other characters are other people I know. Um, in, well, in Ozzy and Millie, Millie was basically me. Ozzy was basically my husband. And um, Max in Phoebe and her Unicorn is also my husband. The same sort of kind of quiet, nerdy sensibility. Okay. Um, And Millie was me as an angry 20-something when I wanted to burn the whole world down. Millie really had a destructive streak. I kind of want most things to explode. Yes. That's the classic (laughs) Millie line. Deep down, I want most things to explode. (laughs) Phoebe would never say that because Phoebe's she comes from the same basic part of my personality that Millie did, but she is much more at peace because I'm in my thirties and I'm not angry about stuff the way I used to be. Don't explode things; you'll hurt my unicorn. Yeah, you know, you know Gabe Phoebe that's... has something to protect. <laughs> she doesn't want her unicorn to explode. Yeah, I was gonna say Gabe's Gabe's uh, uh, impressions are. So good, they sometimes border on the creepy. <laughs> uh, do you know who I hear as Marigold's voice actor, if I could pick anybody? If we were doing, like, a movie? Go for it. Uh, Jane Krakowski. Jenna from 30 Rock. <laughs> oh. Yes! That's, I, I would have guessed Tara Strong, but... I, I, I don't watch the show enough to give a good impression. I'm sorry. If we're going to get a pony person, I would actually... Pick either Tabitha St. Germain, who would probably be it would be a little too close to rarity if she did it, but it would really work. Or or Nicole Oliver, who and Gabriel was there when this happened, um, w- was slightly drunk in a bar at BabsCon last year and told me that she would do a Marigold voice if I ever made a cartoon. Oh, oh Nicole is the voice of Princess Celestia. Oh yeah, which would be strangely perfect, actually. So yeah, kind of. If weird. I ever do get to make. An animated version, and that is an ambition I have. I would love to get to do that. Um, maybe I can get Nicole. I, maybe if I buy her enough alcohol. Well, and the, the, I'll, I'll invest in a bottle or three. <laughs> this trip is well on, is uh, is stylish enough, and and um, uh, the, the visuals. Yeah, people are, people scream about the visuals. They really do. Yeah. Well, I was going to say that the uh, your. The strip is stylized enough that it would be easy to do as a flash animation, you know, uh, uh, rather than traditional cell animation. Yeah, I think the so, style does lend itself to that because yeah. the character designs are pretty simple. With the you know, vector, vector drawings. Um, they've actually gotten more so. Like, I don't think the character designs have changed that much since I started doing this strip. Mm-hmm. But the way that I draw Marigold's mane and Phoebe's hair have both gotten a lot simpler. Yeah, in the beginning, it was sort of Phoebe's hair was a bunch of lines. Like mm-hmm. I, mean, I wasn't trying to draw every strand individually, but it was much closer to that. And now it's more stylized, and I, I do it with like a few thicker lines. Do you work? Uh, do you work in traditional materials, or do you work on computer mostly? I am all digital now. I wasn't always, but I am now. Doing Ozzy and Millie, I did all of that on paper, and I used to say that I was always going to do that, and I really thought that I would. I'm. Because when I started doing comics, um, 
I actually remember something that they told me at jazz camp, which was if there's somebody you want to sound like, find out what equipment they use and get that. And I applied that to cartooning, and I read Watterson's description of how he worked, um, how he used, like, uh, Strathmore Bristol board and a small sable brush for inking. And I adopted that, and that was sort of how I worked for, for 10 years or more. But in the late 2000s, I was seduced by the power of the undo function. Oh, yeah. yeah. Really, really makes a difference. I mean, when I was working on paper, all you could do if you inked something and then decided it wasn't working was white out or fix it in Photoshop, which always felt a little bit like cheating. Or frisk it paper. Yeah. um, Start over. That's mm-hmm. a, always Start a possibility. Uh, it's, um, it's every solution is imperfect. Whereas, and and so a lot of the time, I think I would, I would accept imperfections in a way that I wouldn't now. I'd be like, well, it would be better if Ozzy was a little bit further to the left in that panel. Ah, screw it, I want to do it again. And now I can just I could just bump him over. Yep, Last and that really I up, think it's done great things over. for my art because it's allowed me to experiment more. Uh huh. It's allowed me to, to do things that are a little bit risky, and you, you learn from that. And you can make a mistake and learn from it and not have it screw up your comic. Well, and there's no comparison, you know, in working, having to go from a, a real physical material, and eventually it has to go digital anyway. Yeah, so um, that makes me think of something. I'm, I'm all over the map quoting people today. It makes me think of something that Tom York of Radiohead said. Um, Go with about, it. Uh, how uh, he liked sounds, like to use sounds in his music that were generated electronically because, like, you're hearing them in their original form when you listen to the record, as opposed to a recording of an instrument where you're hearing sort of a computer's interpretation of what that instrument sounds like. Huh. And it is, I, I do think that applies here too. Like when something I scanned in and cleaned up, you're sort of seeing the second generation version of what I did whereas when you look at the strip online now you're seeing it the way I made it you're seeing it the way it looked on my screen when I finished it yeah I've uh, I've started out doing using uh, uh, natural materials myself and made a transition to whole computer about I don't know eight years ago yeah that was about when I did it too was yeah. there like a mass migration of artists to digital media around that time yeah, I, th- well, I think so. That's how, I mean, that's, that's how publishers were accepting it, so their, their work, so. Well, and the, that was, uh, the, the computers got good enough that you could do, actually do that and get yeah, away with it. Yeah, that's true. I mean, there was, it was part, a, yeah, a change in the horsepower. I didn't work digitally in the beginning was, it was 1998, and uh-huh. that wasn't a thing. The computers that I had access to were, it wasn't a reasonable possibility. Right. Digitizing tablets were not a thing. And as soon yeah. as they were, you know, suddenly you've got, you know... You're not drawing with a potato in your hand anymore. Oh, God, yeah. Drawing, yeah, drawing, with, a mouse drawing with a mouse is like trying to draw with a, a, a... Trying to paint with a brick dipped in dye. It really is. It's just so unwieldy. Um, but I got my first tablet in 2007. And at first I just used it for, like, coloring and touch-up work and stuff. But within about a year it took over my process completely. It helped that... Uh, also, during that time, I discovered Manga Studio, which is a program I still use. 
Uh-huh. And it's a really good program for making comics. Like, it makes dividing up panels really easy, and uh, the lettering tools are really good. And I just, uh, between those two developments, it completely changed how I worked over the course of 2007 or 2008, or like around then. So what's next? What's, uh, what are you looking forward to uh, in terms of new projects? What's left? What? Yeah, I'm kind of a... Well, there's lots that's left. Well, there's lots that's left. Heavenly like, Nostrils, so, the motion picture. I've been so driven by this goal of wanting to get my strip launched in print syndication for pretty much my whole adult life. I mean, there was, there was a time when I'd sort of given up on it. Basically, it's always been the thing that I was working toward, and now that happened. And, um, I don't know, maybe it would be a nice thing to just stop and enjoy that before I immediately start lusting after the next thing. But if, if I know me, I'll be ambitiously lusting after something else soon enough. I would love to do a movie. I would love to do an animated TV show. Heavenly um, Nostrils, the Nickelodeon series. That would be great. Or Ozzy and Millie, the yeah. t- TV series. I... I and a friend have uh, begun at least trying to put together a pitch for an Ozzy and Millie show. I don't know. But it will probably never go anywhere because most pitches for TV shows never go anywhere. But it would be cool. It would be And fun. the syndicate has a Hollywood division, and I have at least touched bases with them. So if the strip continues to be successful, who knows? Maybe in a few years I'll get to make like a CGI movie of and I think like a like a Pixar style CGI uh-huh. version of Phoebe and her unicorn would be really I think those characters work really well in that context. Well Blue Sky Studios doing um uh Peanuts. You know, Charles Schultz thing. Yeah, I'm really curious about and it, that. And it looks it looks stylistically like the strip. I I was surprised by that because you hear that somebody's doing a project like that and it's easy to sort of feel trepidatious about the whole thing. I'm not sure about that 3D feel. I mean, that's... Yeah, well, Peanuts is such a creature of... Of two dimensions, you know? Yeah, it was... It's comic strip ran for 50 years, and Mm -hmm. we're used to those characters being two-dimensional. And even, like, the animation of them, they're still basically... They still basically look the same as they do in the strip. And making the transition to 3D, not all ideas make that transition successfully. Yeah, like it's cough, Popeye cough. Like Scarlet, yeah, cough, Scarlet, uh, Rocky and Bullwinkle. Oh yeah. dear God! Oh. Yeah, that was awful. So Rocky, watch me pull the box off his bum out of my hat. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I did like though, um, and this this is a relevant example. Um, Over the Hedge became, which is a comic strip, and then was an and was CGI animated movie, and uh-huh. it. Did pretty well. Yeah, that um, was, but it was good. <laughs> it was good. It was it was a departure from what the strip is, but it had to be. I mean, it's a different medium. It has different needs. It succeeded in spite of Bruce Willis. Well, and it also <laughs> it also succeeded despite the technology they chose. They chose uh, an animation package called Houdini, which is normally used in only for doing visual effects. It's not classically considered to be an animation package. And oh, I think they it succeeded that. because of three people. Um, Wanda Sykes, William Shatner, and Ben Folds. Okay. Yeah, <laughs> that would do I'll it. I'll buy that. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I'm going with that. Uh, Dana Claire Simpson. Simpson. Yes. Thank you so much for joining us on this week's episode of The Event Horizon. 
It has such been a, a pleasure having you having you with us. Give my love to Nikki and the bird. I sure will. In fact, the bird has just gotten home. I call my husband the bird. He just got home. <laughs> Hi, bird. He is not in the room, but I will pass that along. He's we, uh, by the front door. Uh, okay, awesome. can, can, can we can we end on this one note? It's uh, we we can get rid of it in post, right? Yep. If we have to. Okay. Uh, I I just love telling the story. Uh, Dana mentioned earlier how uh, we were in a bar uh, with Nicole Oliver. Uh, it was after this contest I was in where uh, I got to perform some voices in front of some professional voice actors, and uh, okay, she invites all of us quote unquote losers out to the bar for a drink. <laughs> And, uh, contestants. I'm glad that you put losers in quotes. It shows that you have, in spite of everything, a bit of healthy self-esteem down there somewhere. Somehow I saunter on. Anyway, but, uh, and, uh, and I asked Dana to come along, and uh, one of the voice actors at the uh, little gathering in the bar is Peter New. He's the voice of uh, Big Mac on My Little Pony, also the voice of Goldie Delicious, and... Uh, done a lot of other things, does does a lot of voice work for the hub, and, well, eventually, uh, he and I start talking, we start talking shop, and I tell him about what I want to do with voice acting, where I want to go, where I want my career to go, and uh, he asks, and Dana's standing right next to me, he asks a simple question, he asks, well, can you act? Now, me, I have this bad habit, I have this bad habit of being humble in the face of greatness. So, uh, so he asks, can you act? Well, I mean, I do have a resume. Can you act? Well, I mean, according to my directors, I can. Can you act? Well, I have in the past. At this point, Dana grabs my arm, <laughs> digging her fingernails into my flesh. This is a... Okay, I'll, I'll accept this version of the story. This is the true version of the story. All right. <laughs> it has a bit of color, but I like that. Uh, she she turns to Peter. She asks very politely, Can you excuse us for a second? <laughs> she drags me away, spins me around, looks me dead in the eye, and she gives the best paraphrasing of a Ghostbusters line I've ever heard in my life. <laughs> Gabe. When Peter New asks you if you can act, you say yes. <laughs> <laughs> we go back to Peter New. Can you act? Yes, yes, I can. <laughs> you can. Why be humble about that? Uh, yeah, and he actually can. He's done a lot of our bumper spots for us. He's done everything from uh, the cat from Red Dwarf to... Um, the, the ever-loving the ever blue-eyed blue thing, thing, the to, Joker... To Doctor Doom. The, yeah. <laughs> the man has range. Yeah, he does. No one believes that, you know, our guy doing the cat isn't, you know, a short black guy. <laughs> <laughs> that is the mark of yeah, success. Yeah, when we got... People, people we, meet you and they're like, my God, you look like that? <laughs> we have the looks for radio. Oh, sure you have yeah. and yeah. and also... What's the name of the, the actor who... who, who Actually plays the cat. What's Danny, Danny, Danny John Jules. Jules. Yeah, Danny we're, we're both red dwarf. Or we're both red dwarf fans, so we've okay. known that. Yeah, okay. I people ask, how did you get Danny John Jules to do this for you? How <laughs> did you manage is, that? That is an even bigger compliment. Yeah, yes, it and they, is. And they don't believe me when I say it's not him. <laughs> it's great. Never been able to do voices at all, so I respect that talent. Well, 
Well, I can't draw. Well, if uh, Heavenly Nostrils becomes a movie or a cartoon, promise me you'll let me get at least one blurt in. If it is at all within my power, you could be the voice of every goblin in it. <laughs> you heard it here first, people. Great. Well, thanks so much for joining us. It's been it's been a hoot. It really has. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much. Thank you. You have just heard episode 96 of Krypton Radio's weekly production of The Event Horizon for April 11th, 2015. Our guest has been Dana Simpson, the creator of the webcomic Heavenly Nostrils, now in softcover publication and syndication to newspapers all over the country as Phoebe and her unicorn. Your hosts have been Krypton Radio's station manager, Gene Turnbow, our executive producer, Susan Fox, and guest panelist and voice actor, Gabriel Gentile. If you are an author or other creator and would like to be on the show, contact our production manager, Kat Carter, at katcarter at kryptonradio.com. This episode will air again on April 12, 2015 at 4 p.m. Pacific and at various additional times throughout the coming week. See the Krypton Radio website at kryptonradio.com for showtimes in your area. Once all the airtimes have passed, you will find this episode and others as downloads at the Krypton Radio website and on iTunes and Stitcher as podcasts. The Event Horizon title sequence was written and produced by Gene Turnbow. The science officer was Mark Schurmeister. The engineer was Christian B. McGuire. The navigator was Christine Cherry. And the captain was voiced by legendary science fiction writer Larry Niven. This program and its contents, except where provided by others, are copyright 2015 by Krypton Media Group Incorporated. The Event Horizon. It's sci-fi for your Wi-Fi. Unicorn! Ha, 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 ha!